0: Hello, this is Amy Kreider, and I'm joined by...
1: Uh, hello, my name is Jeff Breitman, and I narrated part one, the voice of K'nachtuch, in uh, The Book of Kells.
0: Today we're having a little behind-the-scenes conversation about the making of part one and Jeff's acting career as we transition to part two of Kells. So I'd like to ask you, Jeff, in terms of your acting, how long ago did you start acting?
1: I guess I first got the acting bug when I was in junior high school. There was like a, uh, a summer program where you worked on various aspects of putting on a show that culminated at the end of probably only a couple of weeks now that I think about it. It was, you know, it was a very kind of piecemeal affair, kind of like um, a bunch of popular songs from the 20s and 30s combined with some old vaudeville routines that probably predated Abbott and Costello. I remember, you know, a bunch of us dressed up as, as the three Marx Brothers and I remember how much fun I had wearing the costume. And I remember feeling for the first time, even at that young age, that there was something that I had an affinity for. And um, there weren't too many things that I felt I had an affinity for before acting. So um, I started to get kind of serious about it when I was in high school. I also did um, theater around the Chicago area. I played kids in some big productions while I was in junior high and high school. I was in a production of Landscape of the Body at the Goodman Theater when I was 15 or 16. So I, I did a bunch of professional theater. I was a member of the Piven Theater Workshop uh, out in Evanston. I was in their junior company. And when I moved on to high school I was in their young people's company for 4 years. I was the cast that was just after John Cusack and Jeremy Piven and uh all those uh all those teenagers who became very famous in 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 the 80s. So um there were certainly visions of celebrity, you know, as I was um as I was working my way through high school, but uh um I never really achieved anywhere close to that level of success. However, I was very passionate, very dedicated, and it was my main focus during my uh, years of high school. I ended up going to a school here in Chicago at DePaul University. I went to their theater conservatory, studied there for four years, got a BFA in acting, and when I graduated, I moved to New York City, hoping to, you know, um, achieve success as a professional actor. New York is a very difficult place to live in, very difficult to to get by. Um, I stuck it out for 13 years, um, did a lot of acting, a lot of theater, a lot of kind of cabaret shows, you know, uh, just any opportunity to perform. As the years progressed in New York, I got some experience teaching and I began teaching acting, scene study, monologue work, and improvisation. After 13 years of um, living and struggling and working and not working in New York, I got a job with a children's theater company in Minneapolis, Minnesota. After about five years in Minneapolis, I made the executive decision to return to Chicago, which is where I was born and raised. And uh, I've been back here in Chicago since 2010. I'm 51 years old. I'm still trying to, you know, act but I would say I've been in dozens of productions since I've been back to Chicago. And very few of them are, are for pay. It, it's, it's definitely a labor of love. And it's something that I feel very passionately about. In my 30 years of, of performance, I, I never quite figured out how to um, earn a living as a professional union actor. I'm still trying, but mm-hmm. for the most part, I'm just trying to keep my head above water as well.
0: Well, let's turn the subject over to the book that you've been reading for us. So uh, how did you approach this character of Kanak
1: The first thing I did was I, I read everything through silently. And then before we got to the recording, I read it out loud so I could hear myself do it. And also it kind of got his voice in, in my head a little bit. So I was deferring to your authority as the author in kind of just bringing the world that he was living in uh, to life uh, as, as descriptively as I could. I think it was very helpful to have your language because that was very evocative. Amy sent me, I, I think it was like a four-page pronunciation guide. I'm not I, I can't remember who you received that from.
0: I got connected to a woman through the Irish American Heritage Center who teaches Gaelic. And so we conferred with her. We had a Zoom meeting with her, and she gave us a four-page pronunciation guide. I sent her all the names from the book and asked, How do you pronounce? this or that name. And so we conferred with an expert on getting these names pronounced.
1: Yes, and I would also say, you know, um, we didn't lean in too heavily, but I tried to give a little bit of an accented lilt to the, the, the voice of the the narrator. In addition to the character of Kanochtoch, there are also... Conversations that he has with other monks with several women with um some tribal leaders, and it was very important to me that any listener not be confused as to who was speaking, so I tried to give each character a distinct personality through nuances in how I said their lines in how i um in how I approached the things that they were saying. Uh, particularly the other brothers at the monastery um it was important to me to kind of bring these characters to life
0: was there anything about his character that you could relate to
1: what i could relate to was his sense of his sense of purpose he says all throughout part 1 that it's not about him it's about the book but i I think he's a little deluded. I think it's about his self-expression. And that is something I can definitely relate to, especially relating to how poverty and material la- or lack of material can make one's goals seem out of reach and difficult, if not impossible. So I could really relate to his his yearning to be a scribe and his fear that he wouldn't be able to achieve it. I would say that those were the things I connected with the most.
0: When you were reading the book, did you have expectations about where the story was going to go? And were you surprised by where it went or anything else about the story?
1: I, I didn't have any expectations based on your writing. I had expectations based on my affection for the character and what I wanted to have happened to him. I, and this probably says something about my personality, but I almost hoped that he would um, fall in love and and leave the monastery, but he he seemed destined to be one of the scribes of the Book of Kells. So that was just kind of my silly romanticism kicking in.
0: I took his name as the main character of the book because in the chronicles of the Monastery of Iona, there was a scribe by that name who had said in the chronicle, when he died, it said he was the great master scribe. So I thought, oh, maybe he was one of the scribes of the Book of Kells. So, That's
1: great. Yeah, yeah. I really, um, I really like that he's based on an actual you know human being who was alive and living back in those times it's it's great to know that in the course of his life he's going to achieve what I believe to be his heart's desire and that is to uh to be a great scribe
0: I know you played uh a minister in a George Bernard Shaw play the one that yes I saw
1: the Mrs. Warren's perfection and
0: I didn't know if there was any special consideration in your mind for playing someone who was religious in this old world sense?
1: As a secular Jew, I don't have a lot of connection to the kind of um, Christian ideal that that talk uh, seems to be interested in, and and the characters don't seem to question their faith. If Kanakhtach is sure of anything, it's he's sure of, you know, that he wants to be a monk. But I I have a brother, and my my older brother is a a very um, religious Orthodox Jew. Through witnessing the passion that he spends all his days kind of channeling, I can understand what it is like to be kind of unquestioningly faithful and the the security of belonging to that community of like-minded individuals and how important that is for many people. So I could relate to the the underlying emotions as opposed to relating to the specificity of, of his Christian faith.
0: One thing I tried to do in writing it was to kind of, to keep some of that religious feeling at a bit of a distance. I felt like I depicted Kanatak as minimally religious in some ways. He is more interested in the scribing and creating this gospel. I was trying to emphasize him as an artist more than as a, a really religious person. Yeah,
1: I felt that, but, but I felt that, that he was sincere in his devotion sincere in his belief that scribing would be how he could best you know serve god i guess for lack of a better phrase but perhaps there were aspects of you know the idea that if you want to scribe pretty much the only outlet would be at a monastery right you know exactly so if that's his goal that's where he has to be and and so so that kind of adds a little flavor to his religious devotion?
0: I was challenged because I know most modern readers are not necessarily going to be that religious and might be put off by an overtly religious character. And I ran into this many years ago. I was in a writer's group when I was working on it. And we were reading a couple of pages in part three, where a priest is giving religious instruction to some pagans in northern Europe and I meant it to be a comical scene because everyone's kind of misunderstanding Christianity and comparing the Christian god to Odin and that kind of thing and I thought it was an entertaining enough passage but it was also religious instruction so there was religious content and someone in the writing group said if the whole book is like this I just could not read it. And they were just so put off by this religious content. And that's very challenging, I think, because for most of history, people used to be really religious. I mean, it's very modern to be so secular. And if you do anything historical, you're going to run into religious characters and religious people. You just, you can't avoid it. So... It's a challenge, I think, for the modern reader to encounter that kind of sensibility in historical material. Were there things that surprised you about dark age life that you encountered in the book?
1: My assumption would be about an individual living in those times is that their life was pretty miserable. That from the moment they woke up, until the moment they passed out, exhausted, their life was a struggle. Every day was a struggle to survive, subsist, brave the elements. And at the end of your brief struggle-filled life, you you just died. And uh, if I was surprised by anything, it was the various moments in which Kanochtok described a feeling of grace, or happiness, or peace, the kind of positive emotions, certainly uh, at the beginning of the story when you're talking about uh, him leaving the farm and his family responsibility versus his desire for self-expression. The other aspect that surprised me was just how kind of normal human passions we're still around, we're around even back then that longing and the yearning for connection is not a new invention, you know, that's a result of civilization or technological advances that, that these are kind of primal human needs that have always been there. And um, I, I related very deeply to his desire to connect with people.
0: One thing I think that is a shortcoming about the book is that I don't think I depicted enough of their work and their workday and that struggle. And I think if I were to revise it, I would put in more about their work and their struggle to survive that physical labor. I think that's important. There is a part at the end of part one when they're plowing, and I tried to describe the hardship of that physical labor. And that was actually directly influenced by Leo Tolstoy in Anna Karenina. There's the scene where Levin is mowing the hay with the workers, with the serfs, with their they all have scythes and they're mowing. And it's physically grueling, but he feels the sense of grace to be doing this physical labor. And that was actually a a direct influence on my writing, the scene for the plowing. So this novel has four parts. We're moving on to part two. Right. So this first part was Connachtok's Confession. Part two, we're going to hear from Una. I think I'll keep it under wraps what part three will be. I want to give you some suspense about it. But there'll be a third narrator for part three with another of our ensemble members. Part four will weave those three strands of the story together, and it is a bit shorter again. And that will wrap up the book, and it will take most of the rest of the year to complete Kel's The Gospel of Columba. If you haven't actually listened to part one yet, go to ContinuousDream.com. There are other episodes, other dramas, comedies, at ContinuousDream.com. We have fundraising with Buy Me A Coffee. The link is on the website. And we appreciate the support we've gotten so far. And if you could rate us on Apple Podcasts, every little five-star rating helps us get more listeners. And we appreciate the listeners that we've had so far. Thanks for listening.